very excited to have our old friend, Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times here with us today. And it is in some ways an exciting week because it's the week of the IMF World Bank meetings. And it would be exciting if we thought that they were coming up with all of these wonderful creative solutions to save the world from the upcoming sovereign debt crisis that I am convinced we are going to see. But from all of the reports I've been getting, maybe that excitement should be dampened down. Now, we have Robin here, who over the years, I have always found to be a lot more optimistic than I am, and Robin understands finance much better than I do. And so I'm gonna ask him, Robin, thank you for coming on, but let's start with the big question. How long do you think it is going to be before we see, say, a dozen or so sovereigns tank? Well, that's a great open question. I mean, hi, Mark. Hi, me too. Thanks for having me. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at this, but at least I talk to lots of experts, people like you. So um, I'll have a stab at that. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I would have thought that we would have had a dozen by now, frankly. I thought the scale of the shock that came in March was so unprecedented in its size its nature, its scope, and its depth, and its suddenness, that I would have thought things would have been really a lot bleaker now than they are. Uh, but that doesn't mean that things aren't bleak, of course. I mean, one of the reasons why things haven't completely fallen to pieces is that central banks, led by the Federal Reserve, but you know, followed by pretty much every major central bank, and quite a few minor ones as well, have really gone to unprecedented lengths to make sure that you know, what threatened be, what was obviously a public health crisis of gargantuan proportions, shouldn't escalate into a financial and economic crisis on top of that. Now, the problem is, of course, that central banks can really help a lot with liquidity problems, but solvency problems are a different matter. And clearly there are a lot of countries that you know went into this crisis in pretty precarious shape and we've already seen a few of them sort of totter on the edge zambia being the obvious one that is now locked in talks with creditors and that looks like it's going to end up being at least possibly end up being a hard default now who follows it's hard to know i'm sure there will be few before the end of the year the question of course is whether we have any of the really big countries and whether that creates a domino effect. Because frankly, the world will survive, the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa will survive if, if Zambia defaults. Most of the losers are obviously the Zambian people and, and creditors in, in London and in New York and a few other places. But if we have one of the major countries, then you, know, you, can, see, you can see things snowball quite quickly. And that's what I'm worried about. But, Touch wood, I don't think we'll see a dozen by the end of the year, but I do think we'll see a dozen by the end of 2021. Well, this is, there's an interesting um, distinction you alluded to between maybe having 10 or 12 um, 
relatively smaller economies uh, that are presented with the need to restructure and having somebody like, say, Italy. And so I'm, I'm wondering if we can get you to, to talk a little bit about what you think the likelihood is of one of the big countries um, running into real financing difficulty. I was just looking at the, the FT's headlines the other day, and there were, one was you know, reporting on the IMF saying, look, the, the pandemic's going to cause lasting damage to living standards along the lines of the depression. And then right, right beneath it was the headline that Italy sells interest-free bonds. <laughs> and so the, the, the juxtaposition is, is um, sort of interesting. Do you think that Europe has, I, I, I can't imagine you're going to answer this question. Yes. But um, do you think Europe has permanently solved the Italy problem or, and if not, what do you think the likelihood is that we're going to, uh, see the Italian debt pile get to crisis stage in the in the near future. I'm going to yeah. add to Mark's question because my version of the question is: Is the world of finance completely crazy? Crazy? <laughs> I mean, the idea that Italy is borrowing at zero essentially, and that everybody seems to be confident about them, even though presumably one of their crucial industries, tourism, has gone to zero, at least in terms of uh, high-end American tourists. But I, I think internal Europe, uh, European tourism has really been knocked down too. How are we all of a sudden confident about Italy? This just, and then, okay, I can't stop but go on. I mean, Vitor Gaspar today in the, I think the headline in the Financial Times is telling rich countries, which presumably now we think Italy is one of these rich countries, go on, uh, borrow even more because, I, I don't know what, because you don't have to ever pay it back. I, Robin, you have to explain to us what's going on with the world. Well, the short answer is that, you know, markets be crazy. Uh, and that's you know one of the reasons why I do love covering them because you do see some odd juxtapositions like biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression, countries borrowing at zero interest rates or below zero real interest rates. Um, I mean, it is weird, but basically it boils down to that central bank stimulus that I mentioned. And I just think people don't quite grasp the scale of it because the numbers are just crazy. But just to put it in context, Globally, central banks have on average been buying $15 billion worth of bonds a day in 2020. That means that just in the time we've been speaking now, central banks would have on average bought another $20 million of bonds just in a couple of minutes. Now, the question is, you know, how long can this continue? Can central banks really solve all these issues caused by the pandemic, the enormous economic damage that virtually every country has suffered. And obviously we can see some of that stimulus already, you know, be paired back, or maybe not paired back, but the scope of it is being reduced. That $15 billion a day, you know, was very heavily front loaded in March and April, and it's slowing down a little bit. A lot of government support packages are also slowing down. And that's what the IMF is really worried about. That and the reason why the, devastation isn't even worse is that governments did act 
with far more alacrity than they did after the financial crisis in 08. They kind of dusted off that playbook and implemented it almost immediately, which is you know, something that took us almost a year in, in 07, 08. But I do think whether the stimulus continues at this pace, whether they get more, I think some of the biggest effects that people don't appreciate enough could actually linger for quite some time. So if we turn the clock back to 2009, you know, at the time, everybody thought interest rates would be normalized in inverted commas at some point. Obviously, whatever normal might mean, but people generally only disagreed about when that would happen. As in, there were people that were in the low for longer camp, it was called, or the new normal, where they thought interest rates would stay low for a long time. But by that, they meant four or five years, maybe. And some people thought interest rates would be normalized within a year. Now, the argument was basically just about like, when are things returning to normal. Today, there's been this radical shift in expectations among investors, bankers, and quite a lot of ordinary people as well. A lot of people think that positive inflation-adjusted interest rates, real interest rates, are going to be negative for forever. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that people think they'll be telling their children about, their grandchildren about. And that has huge implications for what you're willing to pay for pretty much any financial asset. If you know that basically you're going to be losing money in sovereign bonds after inflation for the next 10 or 20 years, which is what people are pricing in now, that has huge implications for emerging markets, for Italy. Now, that doesn't mean that it helps countries that are just too deep in the hole, solvency wide, countries like Zambia. Uh, so if you were a pretty shaky creditor going into this, then you, you know it's hard to see how you were in better shape after this. But countries like Italy, you know, they don't have their own central bank per se. It's not a national central bank, but it is a European-wide central bank that still seems committed to the idea of being a pan-European central bank. And as long as they buy bonds, or create money to buy bonds, you know, it can continue for a lot longer than people expect. I mean, look at Japan, which has a debt-to-GDP ratio far north of what Italy has. Now, there are crucial differences, but still... The lesson is that essentially, you know, if you are monetarily sovereign, as in you have a central bank with credibility and it's a big economy and you can create that money that your debts are denominated in, then things can stay, the show can stay on the road for a lot longer than people think. So where does that leave Italy? I mean, Italy has some really intractable problems. I mean, I can definitely go more into Italy if you guys want to. I mean, I've been studying that for a few years now after all well please i mean i i'm i can't i'm speechless because it it wasn't that many months ago that mark and i were talking to senior italian economists who were desperately worried about you know whether or not including you know modifications to collective action clauses would increase the yields on Italian bonds uh, ever so slightly, and that would reduce their ability to pay healthcare costs. And I, I mean, nothing has improved uh, other than fake money and being thrown at everybody. And then now all of a sudden we think that the problems are gone. Everybody's going on planning new vacations, best I can tell. Yeah. I, I mean, it really does seem like we think 
all of the old rules of fiscal behavior and the need for austerity are, are just were wrong. And we have this new understanding of macroeconomics that, you know, I never understood anyway, but now it seems to be even more hocus pocus. And Italy seems to be the the prime suspect here. I mean, they have they have a debt stock that could take the entire globe down. Yeah. No, so I'm worried, but not devastatingly worried. I think you know you can't look at Italy and the numbers that, frankly, they've been coming out of Italy for a long time and not get the heebie-jeebies. Let's take the, the the pros. I mean, on one hand, you know there are very few financial problems that can't be solved, that can't be balmed at the very least by the unfettered use of electronic printing presses. If you can create money at will with a click of a button, then there's a lot of things you can do. So as I said, Italy doesn't have its own central bank, but it still has the ECB. And as long as they're part of that, then I suspect the ECB support will be extremely strong and resilient Partially because, as you point out, if something bad happens to Italy, then that's not just a Italy problem. It's not even a European problem. That's a global disaster. So, Robin, just just following up on this, you know the insides of the European financial authorities very well. You lived through the Greek crisis. You were reporting on what was going on in Europe through that, and I have the memory of that every time I have been anywhere near the European Central Bank, that the primary topic of conversation inevitably was Mm. how precarious the situation in Italy was. And only then would you start talking about all the other countries. I mean, this is after Greece, of course. And I am getting the sense from the press accounts at least, that maybe the European Central Bank and the European authorities, including the German authorities, have just decided, we're just going to bail you out. That that it's no longer the, you're on your own if you screw up your finances. Now we've moved to a philosophy of, we will bail you out. Is is that possibly the answer? Well, yes, because they're not on their own. If Italy goes down the drain, then you'd worry about the solvency of the entire European banking sector and, frankly, the entire banking sector and financial system globally. And I think your point that, you know, is this something that we just didn't understand? Was this kind of voodoo economics? And I do think, like, the understanding of economics has evolved quite significantly since the Eurozone crisis, where... I think people realize, first of all, central banks can do a hell of a lot when they control the printing presses. The second be also that if you are a monetary sovereign, then, you know, frankly, you can do a lot of things. I mean, essentially what the ECB is doing is printing money, buying Italian bonds. It can just forgive all the Italian bonds it buys and it needs recapitalization, but that could be easily done. Or it can just create the money to recapitalize itself. I mean, these are kind of accounting gimmicks and games almost. But as long as, you know, you don't suffer kind of Zimbabwean currency collapse, which, you know, for a currency of the size of the euro, this doesn't seem likely either. Or it's a financial system as big as it is Europe, there are many reasons why that won't happen. 
But there are some huge issues with Italy that actually boil down to some slightly more boring technical and practical and, and political. I mean, for example, the ECB wants to buy bonds in proportion to what it calls its capital key. You know, the, the proportion that each European economy makes up of the ECB. But it can't just buy Italian bonds, so it has to buy German bonds in the same proportion. Of course, Germany doesn't need that help. That's one of the reasons why German bonds you know, are negative going out many, many years. But at some point, there is a theoretical upper limit to how much Italian bonds the ECB can buy. And, you know, it might start hitting that. It can work around that way, but you know, those are, it's a practical issue that could create real life consequences if they don't sort it out. If, if even there's a, a whisper or a glimmer that the ECB is not wholeheartedly backing Italy. Well, this is the thing that strikes me um, most significantly, Robin, and, and maybe this, um, I can ask you this question and then we can take a, a short break before shifting gears. But um, you know, it was so, so recently when the political commitment within the Eurozone to keeping Italy as a member was called into question almost every day, it seems. And if you look at the at the political steps, sort of independent of what the ECB has done, but the political steps between then and now, they've been relatively halting half measures. You know, there's the recovery fund, yeah. depending on who you ask, is a big deal or, you know, not really much of a big deal. It's just how confident are we if part of the reason why Italy's borrowing costs are so low is people have come to believe that the political commitment is there. And I think this is really the heart of Me Too's question. Like how confident are we that that perspective can't be shaken fairly easily? I think it can be shaken. I don't think it'd be shaken easily. I mean, if you think about Greece, Greece probably had the best case of all countries to actually just leave the euro and default and let the chips fall where they may. But even Greece blinked, despite you know, all the brinkmanship, all the grandstanding, Greece fundamentally thought the costs were too high. Now, Italy has better cards to play. And you know, if you go by the old adage that, you know, if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank has a problem. Italy can play brinkmanship a little bit more aggressively than Greece could. But fundamentally, I think people think and know that there's a limit to what Italy is not going to basically bankrupt its entire citizenship and all its banks and its entire financial system and most of the companies and the government just for the hell of it. So there could be some external political shock that makes that possible and that could shake things. But at the moment, people think that's not likely to happen. But I agree that the, the broad point that, you know, some of those economist friends you were talking to, the reason why they're so worried is if you look at the numbers on Italy, they look gruesome. I mean, even with low interest rates, the combination of its deficits, its big, huge and rising government debt pile and no growth means that the servicing this debt is eating up more and more of its budget. I mean, Italy does have a very slender primary surplus so that's before the borrowing costs are taken out. But the interest payments consume around 60 billion euros a year. That's more than a tenth of the entire tax revenues of the country. 
That's the equivalent of the third of the entire wage bill of the Italian government just goes to servicing the interest payments. Not paying it down, just servicing its debts is up a third of the wage bill. It's 15% of all social payments, all unemployment, sick leave, maternity leave, everything that Italy pays out. That debt is the equivalent of 15% of that. In the long run, that's the kind of stuff that creates, rightly or wrongly, political dissent or varying degrees of severity. And Italy is one of those countries where the support for Europe and the Euro is low and has been slipping for quite a while. And that is the worrying thing. I think all things being equal and assuming nobody does anything dumb, Italy can actually have a big and growing debt pile for quite a while. I mean, we're talking years. I mean, possibly in perpetuity, depending on you know, how the ECB responds. In practice, there are all sorts of thorny longer term issues that might need to be sorted in the short term to have a bit of a course correction there to make sure that Italy isn't something that goes on the front page of the FT two or three times a year, essentially. Well, there was, um, there was, that was a more optimistic answer in some respects than I had hoped, but there was enough, um, enough doom and gloom in there that Me Too, at least, will be very happy. So maybe we can take a break and Me Too can do a little dance for joy to get it out of his system, and then we can come back um, and, uh, and talk in just a couple of minutes. So this is a good point to transition. Uh, and I guess I, I wanted to get your thoughts, Robin, on a question of market structure. If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, uh, I suspect we would have been talking a lot about distressed debt funds. We would have been talking about Elliot, um, Aurelius, people like that. Um, and yet, in the few restructurings that have happened recently, those funds have not been the key players and there have been few holdouts and people are not um, uh, especially focused on litigation risk in the traditional sense. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, has the, the market changed in your perspective so that the larger funds uh, are now the key players. Um, what, who are we going to be talking about on the investment side if we do wind up in a, a situation where there are a number of restructurings? Um, as a way of leading in, I guess, to a discussion about um, index funds eventually. But, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. No, it's, it's a great question. And it is one of the most interesting trends in the sovereign debt restructuring space. I mean, historically, obviously, as you guys know, even better than I, you know, the big lenders were banks. If you go back far enough and it was all bank loans. And then there was a massive migration over the past generation where most of the borrowing is done through bonds and the holders are pension funds, insurers, sovereign wealth funds and asset managers. Now, even 10 years ago, the biggest players were those asset managers. They weren't necessarily the hedge funds, but the hedge funds enjoyed a lot of or took up a lot of headspace purely because they were way more noticeable. I mean, historically, the big boring mutual funds just have tended to get the hell out of Dodge. Whenever a country defaults, they take their hit, flip the paper to people like Elliot or Aurelius, or more specialized emerging market debt funds that know their way around a restructuring table, or they just sit there quietly, not minding their business and just figure, well, we'll see what these guys negotiate, we'll accept it, no questions asked, and then move on. 
but that has started to shift a little bit in recent years. I mean, one of the first really interesting ones was Franklin Templeton or Franklin Resources and their big, big exposure in Ukraine, mm -hmm. where rather than just taking their lump and moving on, they dug in and said, no, we're going to only re accept a restructuring that we think is fair. And obviously, if fair is by them, you know, what's good by their investors and their investment funds. And they kind of won. They, they did well. They did way better than people expected out of Ukraine. And I think that has changed the calculus among other asset managers. Now, this is my, only my own theory, but it boils down to fiduciary duty. If you're a big investment fund, you have a fiduciary duty to fight for those investors. Now, as a matter of practical concerns, dealing with a sovereign debt restructuring, it has reputational issues, it's a headache, it's complicated. It's not something that you want to do. It's not really something you have any expertise in doing. But when Franklin did that, it showed that it can work and you can get a better deal. And either it encouraged people to do the same well, at the very least, it made them worry about, well, if we don't seem to be fighting for our investors, could somebody sue us even? I mean, we haven't seen any examples of that. It's very hard to do, but that's certainly not a headline you want. And you know, Franklin also ignored, you know, the Treasury had geopolitical concerns in Ukraine and put a lot of weight on them, but they ignored it and they won through. So we've seen a few examples of a similar ilk. For example, Fidelity again, a big old boring mutual fund company that you know has a lot of investments around the world. They really went to town on Buenos Aires, the the city of Argentina, and they managed to sort of call Buenos Aires's bluff and get paid back in full. Uh, Venezuela, there was not the typical mass migration of Venezuelan paper after the default from the weak big hands of the mutual fund world and the asset management world to the Aurelius and Elliot's of the world. So I think they just, they've, they've become bigger. So they have, first of all, the, the clout and the internal resources that they can actually have some lawyers internally that work on this. And they also worry about the signal effects. I mean, if you're if I'm Wigglesworth Capital and I have a big position in Zambia, for example, or in any other country, I might worry that if I am seen to be obsequious or lackadaisical and not attentive to fighting for a good deal, well, what happens with my exposure in Turkey or Brazil or any other countries? You have an incentive to fight hard so you don't be, you're not seen as a soft hand. And that changes the calculus a lot. Now, I do think these firms are far less likely to get aggressively litigious than the likes of Elliott. They do have longer time horizons than the classical holdouts. So they could end up being even more stubborn negotiators. Well, we've seen, I mean, just, just to follow up on that, and, and I, it, this question was prompted for me when you mentioned the fiduciary duties potentially playing into the the calculus here. I mean, that is one of the explanations which has struck me as sort of a make-weight for the unwillingness of private creditors to participate in the, the DSSI, the, the G20's debt service suspension initiative. So there's a sense in which concentrating sort of active negotiating power 
in the hands of these larger funds with larger positions could be a good thing. It could make restructuring negotiations smoother, um, leave fewer holdouts and so forth. But don't the early returns suggest that this is going to be problematic or at least the the advent of a new era of reluctance to participate, much sharper bargaining than we've seen in the past? And just to add to that um, on, you know, uh, almost every one of the recent restructurings, I mean, I was just looking at Zambia, the news on Zambia today, and it seems like the funds built blocking positions. That's right. Already. And it's sort of... I'm imagining this in my head, but I, I'm not sure whether this is really what's happening, which is that in, in the earlier decade, a country would say, we're in trouble, uh, the rating would go down, and then the, the big funds would dump their holdings because they, you know, they had these implicit or explicit promises to investors that they wouldn't hold securities below a certain rate. And then that would allow for Elliot and Aurelius and Third Point or whoever else was engaging in sort of the, the deep distress purchases to swoop in and buy debt at discounts. But now it seems like they see distress and they buy more. It's sort of at the margins. They're like, ah, oh, we're already in this. We're not leaving. And so we're just going to buy more and that will increase the value of our securities. I mean, from a contract perspective, the fa- I mean, the game changes fundamentally when you have the big players thinking about playing, uh, thinking about how to use contracts to their advantage. And I'm wondering whether that that is one of the big changes we've seen. And if so, things like, collective action clauses and all of their ilk that we all spend so much time thinking about and drafting and arguing over, it kind of become useless because the big funds are now playing the game. Well, no, I think those are great points. I don't think it becomes useless, but it definitely does change the game. I mean, Lazard recently put out a white paper that talked about the collective action issue. And obviously, in theory, with a more concentrated, less dispersed group of bondholders, collective action should become easier in that the negotiation might be harder, but you know you get all the people relevant, you can fit them around a conference table essentially, which harks back to the old days when there were mostly banks. I think the dynamic is that, yes, they are, they don't want to be seen as pushovers and they are worried about that image. And also that, you know, fundamentally, I think the official sector has less sway over them. In the era of bank loans, for example, you could, basically the Fed would pat people on the shoulder, metaphorically speaking, but sometimes literally, and say, look, we want you to do this. And very few banks would go up against the express wishes of Treasury and the Federal Reserve. But that's kind of the game that is kind of embedded in the nature of asset managers. A lot of what they do is betting on or against central banks and treasuries. So it's just that they just aren't as easily persuaded to do things that they don't think is in their own interests. So the collective action clauses and a lot of the improvements we have seen over the past decade and a half, or almost two decades, have come from solving the issue of dispersed 
ownership of bonds, the collective action problem. That I think still is real, but the name of the game or the nature of the game has evolved as we see fewer, bigger players having a big role in a lot of these workouts. Now, again, I don't think they're not, they're never going to be Elliot. You know, Elliot is a very uniquely smart and aggressive firm. And I think there is an issue of reputational issue in that, especially in a time like this, nobody wants to be seen to be the fund that's holding a poor, impoverished, COVID-stricken country for ransom, essentially. But neither do they want to be seen to be pushovers. So how this all works out is going to be fascinating. But I agree with you guys both that I suspect that the next round of sovereign debt workouts are going to be quite tough. And a lot of the big contractual improvements we've seen over the past few years are not necessarily going to be a major help, let alone a silver bullet, to resolving these issues. They're going to have to be worked out on an ad hoc basis through tortuous negotiations and hopefully as much moral suasion as the official sector can bring to bear on these funds and encourage them to be proactive and accept that certain things have to happen. Now, the X factor here, of course, is, for example, in Zambia, is the big role of China as a lender to a lot of these countries and you know what one should do with that, how they should be treated. Should private sector creditors take massive gargantuan haircuts on money they invest on behalf of US taxpayers and savers and pensioners so that a Chinese state bank can walk away scot-free. I, I can see the issue why they would find that distasteful and possibly even open them up to a far more damaging reputational issue with their own clients if they do something like that. So, Ramin, I, I want to ask a little bit about China, but then I want to move to the index fund. So I'm going to ask you two questions so as to preempt Mark from asking uh, a question in between. So the, the first question is, is it possible that the whole China drama we're seeing in Zambia is just a red herring? And uh, I, I don't know, that's a term we usually use in law school to, to denote something that's not a real issue. I'm not sure if that's a more widely used issue, but uh, a term. But it, you know, China, when it lends, lends with its own instruments and its own types of leverage. And arguably, the Chinese connection, and those instruments are not being traded on any sort of market, the Chinese connection stabilizes the country. And so I would think, you know, investors haven't really bothered to know about the extent of Chinese lending, what the terms of the Chinese lending are, whether there's any sort of collateral, so that this sudden interest in making sure China's participating in the debt relief strikes me as perhaps a veil for something else going on. I, can't, I don't know what else is going on, but I'm just skeptical. I've been hearing this China, China, China. We need more transparency. We need to know uh, what China's lending, what the terms are. And the fact that people are only now asking this uh, makes me suspicious. But the other question I want to ask uh, so that I grab more of your time than Mark does, because it's all very competitive here, is about 
the rise of index investing. And a rumor is that you are writing a book on this. And I'm interested in how th this rise of index investing in sovereign debt is going to impact the upcoming crisis. Now that we have established that within six to eight months, uh, we're going to have a dozen or so uh, countries going into default. Including Italy. Well, I'm crossing my fingers that that won't happen. Uh, to deal with the China issue, I agree, but only to an extent, in that I think it's a red herring in that this was a known issue that might not have been talked about, but everybody knew that China had lent a lot of money to Zambia and a lot of other countries that might end up in, in distress. And my rule of thumb when it comes to these things is that, you know, the reason why you lend money to Zambia and get a big fat coupon from the country is because they're paying up for the risks. The China was an embedded known risk. Nobody really know, knew the terms of the loans. I agree they don't trade and all that, but this was known that this was a potential risk that you might find yourself basically de facto subordinated to a very powerful, big sovereign lender. And you got paid for those risks and you misjudged and you should just accept that and move on. So I do agree that that, to a certain extent, has been overplayed. But that doesn't mean it's not real in that when the IMF goes in and does a debt sustainability analysis for a country, they have to take everything into account because there have been some very concrete examples where they didn't know about some of the debts were not disclosed. And that has huge repercussions. It can lead to some serial debt crises and economic crises. So when a creditor is told by the IMF or by the Zambian government or some government that you have to take a 50% haircut, you understandably kind of want to know that you're not taking a 50% haircut so China can get away scot-free for making the same loans to the same country at theoretically the same legal ranking when China could take a 10% haircut and you can take 75%. So I do think that when it comes to the economic calculations that they make and like how much they can accept or how much debt relief can they give a country, they want far more transparency on what China's lent, how, at what rates, and what's going to happen to that side. And practice, how much they can really do, I, I question. And I think if the, if the calculation for most sub-Saharan African governments is that you have China, one of the most powerful countries in the world that is not afraid of throwing its weight around, or a bunch of annoying investment groups in New York or California, you're going to sign with China. And this is a thorny issue that is going to have to be worked out at some point. The IMF has also talked a lot about that it wants more debt transparency and discussions and maybe some sort of reforms to how official sector creditors are treated alongside private sector creditors. I'm, so I'm one hand, I'm probably more op optimistic than you guys on a lot of issues around, you know, how bad things are going to be. I'm extremely cynical about how much real supranational co collaboration and coordination there's going to be in issues like this. Uh, and that's why I do think that bondholders are going to just probably have to accept that China's China and you're going to have to eat your sort of restructuring cake and be happy with it. 
on index funds, I mean, that's a huge, important, interesting subject. I and mean, there's a reason why I'm writing a book about it. It's not just because I'm a giant nerd. Um, but are there any particular areas that you want to discuss within the indexing world, the index fund world, and how it pertains to emerging markets and debt restructurings? I will yeah. jump in because Mitu had a long time to ask his question, and he seems not to have asked a question that was, well, let's, let's be fair. It took a very long time to get the question out, so maybe some of the details were lost. Um, I want to know two things, I guess. So one is whether index funds might... Um, magnify swings, whether um, sort of exuberant periods of overinvestment or panics um, by, for instance, um, adding or dropping countries from the, from the index, the index makers, I guess I should say. Um, and relatedly, I guess a, a, another question is whether you have any sympathy for efforts to get index makers to use their power for good. Uh, and, and I think the sort of the recent example of this is Ricardo Hausman's plea that JP Morgan drop Venezuela from its index as a way of putting pressure on the Maduro government. So I guess question two is whether you have sympathy for efforts, uh, uh, efforts like that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is do the very top level side. Uh, I mean, the growth of index funds is a really big deal. I mean, one of the fun factoids I often trot out that a lot of people aren't actually aware of, but the world's biggest bond fund is actually an index fund. It's the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund, which is $288 billion now. It's bigger than PIMCO's total return fund ever was. There's over a trillion dollars just in bond ETFs. It's bigger than the loan book of a JP Morgan or a Citi. I mean, the biggest gold ETF holds more gold, physical gold bars, than the Bank of England. It holds the equivalent of a quarter of all the gold in Fort Knox. But in emerging markets, this is still a small but growing role that they play. You know, a lot of these bond index funds tend to be, whether ETFs or index mutual funds, tend to be in the big mainstream markets. In emerging markets, they are growing very rapidly, but they are still small players. Though I should stress that, you know, when I talk to fund managers in that world, it's been interesting to see just in the last few years how the view of them has shifted. I mean, I've talked to several fund managers that say that one of the first and last things they check in the mornings and in the evenings are inflows into EM bond ETFs because it has a big, can have a really big impact. So the two issues is one is an index fund, whether an index mutual fund or an ETF, that tracks an index and all it does is just invite invest in all the debt in that index and then there's stuff that the benchmark that almost every investor has some sort of benchmark a bogey that they have to surmount they have to do better than and both because of both those kind of pillars indices have a lot of power over investors so a classic case is venezuela you know Venezuela stayed in the indices, the JP Morgan bond in the EM bond indices are the dominant ones. And Venezuela stayed in those for a long time. And it was a really big creditor. So even after it defaulted, it was a big part of the index. And that means that investors, like some of the mutual funds we talked about, are incentivized to staying in a situation they might want to get out of. Because if you dump Venezuela, and let's say the Venezuelan bonds go from 20 cents to 40 cents, even though there's no 
because maybe people hope there's some restructuring coming, then suddenly that's 100% gain. And that's 100% gain in a major chunk of the index. So just by dumping some defaulted paper, you've massively underperformed your index. So that means that indices have a huge influence over like what investors do in practice. And yeah, I mean, you can see a million ways this is manifested. Like for example, just on ETFs and how they amplify potential financial cycles, how much do they make markets more fickle? I think on a micro level, occasionally a little bit, on a macro level, not as much because they're not that big, but clearly being part of a big index makes you more attuned to global flows. And both the IMF and the Fed has actually written some papers about this. There's a professor at George Washington University called Thomas Williams who's written several papers about this, about how ETFs can be you know, a boon, a blessing, and also a curse, in that it lowers your borrowing costs being included in a big index because of the automatic flows that will come into your bonds and because of the incentives that other people have to buy them but of course, if suddenly something happens in a completely different part of the world that causes one of these risk off bouts that everybody pulls in the horns, then they might dump the EM bonded ETF. And then a country that is fundamentally in okay shape might just see its bonds chunder. So ETFs and index funds and benchmarking more broadly does have the potential to amplify and these, the ebb and flow of global capital and making EMs more attuned to those ebbs and flows in a way that they didn't used to be. So, Ramin, uh, is this sort of what happened in March of this year when we had the sudden stop? I mean, what, the, did the index did the index uh, funds impact that sudden swoosh of capital out? And should we be afraid of another? sudden stop that this time is much worse. And then I, I want to uh, sort of go back to uh, Mark's quest, second question about Ricardo Hausman and him trying to put pressure on the Venezuelan government. In fact, I think you did a podcast with Ricardo Hausman where maybe you discussed this. And, you know, he thought that in this world of indexation, maybe the key mechanism to put pressure on the Maduro government was to get JP Morgan to threaten to throw them out of the index. And he didn't succeed in uh, doing that, although uh, the, the hunger bond, uh, the infamous Goldman Sachs hunger bond did not get put in the index. But it, it did make me wonder about the power of an institution like JP Morgan to decide what's in the index and what's not the index. So I realized I probably asked you five questions in there and we promise we'll uh, let you go. We know it's late at night in Oslo, but any parts of that that you wish to answer, that, that would be great. No, no, I, I've got plenty of time. The kids are in bed now, thankfully, so you probably won't hear as many squeals in the background anyway. Um, to take the, the first part of the question, March was for the index fund world or the ETF world in particular, absolutely fascinating. Yes, we did see a sudden stop. So, you know, to deal with the first question in two parts, some of the shenanigans we saw were just a result of just how massive and sudden that shock was. I mean, it's almost, it feels like we've lived a decade in 2020 already 
But just to rewind a bit, you know, suddenly the entire world, almost the entire global economy went into complete shutdown in a way that has never, ever happened before in history. Not through world wars, not even the Spanish flu, nothing like that has ever happened before. And that meant that people had to respond with incredible speed. So that's the main reason for why markets went into such free fall so abruptly. Now, did ETFs amplify that or index funds broadly? Uh, the data on index funds showed that most people use them as savings vehicles and they don't tend to have very fickle inflows or outflows. In fact, mutual funds seem to actually have the data to suggest far more of a fickle investor base than index funds or mutual funds. On the ETFs, we saw a lot of like weird dislocations happen when ETFs would suddenly drop some five, 10%, but the bonds that they invested in didn't seem to drop nearly as much. And people were really worried that that shows that like the ETF market is breaking. In reality, I think it's as, based on the sort of fundamental misunderstanding of the mechanics of how they work, that ETFs trade both on the primary market and that like, they're almost like a perpetual IPO. They create or redeem shares all the time uh, and then they trade just like a stock. So what happened in March was that nobody could sell corporate debt. A lot of people couldn't sell emerging market paper. This wasn't about you might have to accept a bid that was away from what you thought was fair. It's like you couldn't sell. So if you had to raise money in a hurry, what you did was sell the ETFs. You sold the shares in the ETF to somebody else. And that's why we saw suddenly the shares absolutely plummet. But I'd argue that actually in a weird way meant that the ETFs acted as a shock absorber for some of the mayhem we saw in that if ETFs hadn't existed, more people would have tried to sell Brazil or Argentina or GE or IBM or perishable thought US treasuries even we saw. People sell what they can sell, not what they want to sell. And we would have seen massively gappy markets where basically the bond market just would have crapped out extremely quickly. So the ETFs kind of absorbed a lot of that selling pressure and bore the brunt of that especially in certain segments of the bond market. So I think we should worry about some of the fragilities that they might bring. But so far, fixed income ETFs have gone through several really big cycles like the global financial crisis and a pandemic of unprecedented scale and breadth and come through it kind of with strengthened credentials in my view. And dealing with the Ricardo Carter Hausman point, I mean, I. It's a fascinating subject. And I personally, I think his proposal is absolutely intriguing and I'd love to see it happen. But I also think it has in reality, little to zero chance of actually being implemented, short of extremely heavy handed official intervention of a kind that we are unlikely to see even under a different US administration. There is an element of discretion that comes into the process of creating a bond index but a lot of it is quantitative. So the hunger bond, I suspect, was not included purely because they didn't trade. You have to have a certain amount of liquidity to be included. You have to be relatively standardized. And, you know, there are games around countries making index-friendly bonds so they can get included. And this was 
almost deliberately not an index-friendly bond anyway, irrespective of some of the stinky smell that hung around it like a miasma. But more importantly, the index providers don't really want to be dragged into these really, really contentious issues. JP Morgan doesn't want to sit there and make a judgment of which country is a nice country or a bad country, which bond is a good bond or a bad bond. They don't want to do stuff like that. I think in practice, like the fact that they have the power to do so is actually a really important thing and something that you know, I, I grapple a lot with my book and in, in my work at the EFT and I still think a lot about. There was a really interesting paper that came out earlier this year that it, the title was Staring Capital. I can't remember the subtitle, but it looked at the role of index providers in an era of index funds and in an era where index funds get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because of the remorseless logic of generally investing in a cheap passive vehicle. So, I mean, this uh, actually took out one of the quotes from it. I have it up here because I'm literally working on my book these days. And I'll quote from it because it is really interesting. So this is a paper called Staring Capital uh, by three academics. And this is a quote, they are index providers are becoming the gatekeepers that exert de facto regulatory power and thus may have important effects on corporate governance and the economic policies of countries. Now, they desperately don't want to exercise that power, but that doesn't make that statement any less true in practice. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, we're only at the early stages of seeing how index funds and passive investing are reshaping markets in myriad ways that we're only starting to get our arms around. But I think it's almost better to sort of start talking about issues like this in podcasts like this, so we can get ahead of the problems before they become cataclysmic. And that, you know, we're all humans. I'm terrible. I only go to the gym once I've kind of added 10 pounds, right? When I should be going to the gym a little bit every day, maybe. And uh, we're just really bad at dealing with crises until they're a crisis. So we don't get ahead of them. I don't think this is a potential crisis, but there are negative side effects around how the market structure is evolving, the structure of the investment industry is evolving that has huge impact on how companies are run and how countries are run. And that shouldn't be wandered into obliviously. We should be thinking and talking about these issues now so we maybe get a decent handle on it and have some vague ideas for what the impact could be and maybe how we can ameliorate the downsides while still capturing all the, the positives that index funds represent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Robin. We, have, um, we really appreciate you being here. I'm looking forward to the book. And I know I speak on behalf of Me Too when I say thank you for giving us just enough doom and gloom to carry us through to next week. That was, that's a crucial part of each week for us. And now we've got a little more in the tank that we can, that we can rely on. So thank you for that. No, absolutely, Joe. I'm so glad I could do it. And uh, yeah, I even got to plug my book, which isn't out for another year, but you know, it's still one of my favorite subjects.